Ecclesiastes 6 today and continue with the mundane, if you will. Uh, again, written from the standpoint of life on this earth as lived by generation after generation and essentially without God. Now, he'll begin to mention God a little more now as we get into the second half of the book. Because that's the key to the whole thing, really, is that this life is futile, it's vain, there's nothing, if there's nothing afterward, if there's nothing better to come along, <coughs> then really what's the point? And we all die the same, he keeps coming back to that. But let's pick it up and see what he says in chapter 6. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. So the evil that he is about to describe is something that is known everywhere, common to man. Not rare, not occasionally, but very common. A man to whom God has given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wants nothing for his soul of all that he desires, yet God gives him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eats it. This is vanity, and it is an evil disease. So if you have been given some blessings and you are not of such an attitude that you can accept those in thankfulness from God and be able to utilize them in your life and then someone else winds up enjoying them, what a futility that is. So this is not an evil like, let's say, committing a particular crime or sin, <coughs> this is an evil, <coughs> excuse me, of an individual not taking advantage of whatever blessings they've been given, and someone else winds up perhaps with them because you are not continuing to be blessed, not having the power to eat thereof. It reminds me on a spiritual level of the scripture which says to be careful lest another man take your crown. If we have been brought to a knowledge of the truth, and then we, for whatever reason, let our attitudes slip, let our conduct slip, let our conviction and commitment to God slip, for whatever reason, then another man could take our crown, because he's going to have 144,000 there. That's just a fact. That's what he says. It's an exact number. And you have been offered a crown. Are you going to wear it, or will someone else? That is a question that stands before all of us, is do we abdicate for some reason before we ever even are crowned? And people I've seen and you've seen over the last quarter century, an awful lot of people abdicate. They let people get in the way, they let leaders get in the way, they let sin get in the way, lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, or whatever get in their way, and as a result, they give up, quit, and of course Christ said some would fall in good ground, some in the thorns, some in the stones, and so on. So, we need to take advantage of what he does give us. Uh, that is an evil disease, to be offered something and then allow the attitude to go away for whatever reason. 
And he goes on to say, If a man beget a hundred children, and live many years, so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial, so it doesn't matter, you can have a hundred kids, you can live a long time, but if nobody cares enough to even bother with burying you, <laughs> then that life has been pretty futile. It means that you have not influenced the people around you, friends, neighbors, relatives, or whatever, in a good way to the point that even want to come to your funeral or bother to bury you. I say that an untimely birth is better than he. Someone who is born, not expected, perhaps not wanted, but if you live a long life and it ends with nothing and no feelings really from those around you, better not to have been born. For he comes in with vanity and departs in darkness and his name shall be covered with darkness. No reason to even try to remember. Uh, why, why, if it's been a bad experience for everyone around you, <coughs> even be born? It all comes back to love, doesn't it? It's the greatest thing. And we've been given this life, and we need to love and care for those around us. And if we don't have the love of God, we're missing out on the greatest thing there is along with faith and hope, but that's the greatest. Moreover, he has not seen the Son, nor known anything. This has more rest than the other. So, if you go through life basically blind and just stumbling through life without purpose, without a goal, with just living, just being, what good does it do? You don't really know anything. I see a lot of people around in this world who are just sort of going through the motions, but they have no real purpose, no real reason for being, no, no particular goal in life that's beyond just this life. They don't understand. Well, some of them are religious and they think they're going to be raptured or go to heaven when they die or some such thing, but the Scriptures clearly show that that is not the case. There's got to be something more than just this life. Verse 6, Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told. There are people who lived a thousand years and over. Well, I guess, let's see, Methuselah was not quite a thousand. <coughs> but close enough. So if you live 2,000 years and see no good, do not all go to one place. You may live 70, 80, 90 in this life now, but if you live 2,000, what good would it do you? When you die, the memory's gone. Your experiences are gone. Your adventures, your hopes, your dreams, your loved ones are gone from you. So what good did it do? The point that he is ultimately leading to, I think, wouldn't be missed by any of us here. And that is, we need to be striving for something that is eternal, that is not vain, that doesn't end, that will always be there, and, and be a good existence as opposed to this life of trials that we experience on this earth. And he goes over and over 
the frustrations and difficulties of life here. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. So we work, we have a job to be able to pay the bills, to be warm and filled, to eat, and yet we're never full. You never eat enough to satisfy you entirely. Sometimes we eat so much we think, man, I'll never be hungry again. Well, give yourself about four hours. <laughs> You'll get over it and be ready to eat again. God is in such a mental state and spiritual state that He doesn't need to eat. He eats if He wants to, if He so desires. Christ said, I'll not have wine with you again until I have it with you in the kingdom. It's not bothering Him not to have a drink for that period of time. Uh, but he'll enjoy it with us, he says, when that time comes. There'll be a feast, and there'll be wine. For what has the wise more than the fool? They both eat, they both sleep, they both have clothes. They may even in this day have cars. The wise and the fool both have about the same thing. How do you know the difference? Well, I guess you can watch them for a while, listen to them for a while, and you'll know the difference between a wise one and a fool. What has the poor that knows to walk before the living? Who has an advantage? Verse 9, he says, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. In other words, be content, as Paul said, with what you have. Be thankful for what you have, because in that, a thankful attitude, there is contentment. Being forever thankful for what you do have leads to peace and contentment. But frustrating yourself over things you desire that don't have is a frustration to you at all times. So he says, be thankful for what is. Have a thankful attitude as you go through life. Sometimes we make statements like, well, any day above, earth, above ground's a good day. We, we could be negative and say, well, yeah, I'm here, but I sure do have problems today, or so-and-so sure has problems that impact me, or whatever attitude we want to have that is ungrateful, unthankful, unappreciative, or selfish. Who does it frustrate? The person who is envious or jealous or selfish, who, who has spends time desiring things that he probably cannot have and will never happen. That is a life of discontent. So he says, better is the sight of the eyes. What you can see that you have, be thankful for it, than the wandering of desire to things that are probably beyond your reach. I mean, you can live here, you can live most anywhere in the country, and if you spend your time and subscribe to about 16 different travel magazines, 
and all you think about is Caribbean beaches or Hawaiian paradise or whatever, you know, your desire might be, you're going to be frustrated where you are, simply because you wish you were somewhere else doing something different. And that is a personal frustration to you then. I've heard people express those things. Oh, I've got to go to work today. Wish I could go to Jamaica. Or whatever, you know. No, just be content. Rather than frustrating yourself with the desires. Now, some of those things might come to pass. You might be able to do certain things that you would like to do. And there's nothing wrong with that if the opportunity affords itself and you can afford it and so on and so forth. But it is the obsession, it is the focus that gives you problems. Saying, I'm living here and I'm enjoying it. Life is good because I'm alive and I can eat and drink and be warm. Wonderful. I wouldn't mind going to Jamaica sometime if I ever get enough money ahead and the world holds together. See, it's okay to think I would maybe like to do something or have something. That's not lust. That's not covetousness. That's not a desire that you obsess about. So it's okay to have a desire. I like to travel. I probably travel more than most people. Been to every continent but Antarctica, and I'm not too fond of the idea of going there. And I've been in every state, and on almost every road, at least in the West. I've been a lot of places, done a lot of things. And I still like to go places and see things or review memories or whatever. <clears throat> but I don't sit around and say, oh, i just got to go so-and-so. i got to do this. Got to do this. Frustrate me. But if the opportunity is there, and I can, I can pack in about 10-15 minutes if I need to. I used to tell John Reitenbaugh, if you need me to go across the country, give me 15 minutes to go home and get my toothbrush and we'll jump a plane. If you need me to go overseas, you better give me an hour so I have time to find my passport, you know, and gather up a few more things. So I'm ready, willing, and able, or have been, most any time. But I certainly don't sit around and frustrate myself. i got enough to do right here. I have plenty on my plate in terms, well, that could go on and on. There is a focus. There is a goal. There is a purpose for being here. And I try never to let that get very far from my eyes and my focus about what we are here to do and whatever I might need to do to further that purpose of God. So I don't have time to obsess about things that I don't have. Doesn't mean I don't ever do it. I didn't say that. But we need to be content with what we have. Paul said it. Christ said it. And Solomon, with much wisdom, said the same thing a long time before that. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. <clears throat> To desire that which is not readily available and to obsess over it creates vexation. I said frustration. Same thing. That which has been is named already. <clears throat> it is known that it is man. 
neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. As he said in another place, there's nothing new under the sun, really, is there? From Adam and Eve, right on down through history, to his time, and now since him, down to us, there's really nothing new. Uh, we're people. We are men made in the image of God, and that's what we are and all we are. So, if we want to puff ourselves up and act like we're bigger or better, no, we're not. We're all men. We all put our pants on one leg at a time. Ladies, not always quite that way, but speaking of mankind, man and woman. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. We can compare ourselves among ourselves about our abilities and our greatness and how we're more qualified than so-and-so or whatever. But uh, that's futile too. That's vanity too. God does what God wants to do, and our objections mean nothing to Him. The quicker we realize that, the, better, the more content and the happier we'll be. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? You know, most of what this society that we live in today is about is vanity. We get facelifts, we get liposuctions, we get uh, new iPhones, we get this, we get that, and we're trying to outdo the Joneses, and uh, we're outdoing ourselves into poverty and destruction of our country because of our greed and our jealousy and our envy. Uh, instead of being content and thankful for what God has given us, we've gone after other things. And all it does is increased vanity, and then when you die, it all goes away anyway, and somebody else spends it. So what, what is America about? Land of the free, home of the brave, they used to say. Some still say it, but they ain't got a clue. What is it about? If this nation does not turn to God to a higher power, and follow his ways, it will be utterly destroyed. And since it will not, and Scripture says it will not, and Jeremiah said don't even pray for this nation, it is going to be utterly and totally destroyed, save a little less than 10% who will survive into the millennium. So what if our McMansions and our fancy cars and all of our gadgets and electronics and our screens and our fancy clothes and fancy gourmet foods and on and on and on it goes in this society today. Richest, wealthiest nation that has ever existed. And it's all going away very shortly now. So what good was it? Ninety-some percent of our people will be dead and this will just be gone. Just totally gone. So it's, in a way, kind of been a futility to build it, hasn't it? If we would not obey God, and if we would not be preserved by Him, and we have not, and will not, so the high handwriting has been written on the wall, and this nation is dead, as good as dead.
For who knows what is good for man in this life? All the days of his vain life which he spends as a shadow. For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? The only glimpse we have into the future is what God tells us he has in store for those who will serve him. But if you don't have knowledge of that and don't have the truth of it, you have nothing. There's nothing to look forward to. And what will be after us? You know, if I didn't have God's Word to tell me what can be in the future, I would have no clue what's coming after me. This world doesn't. In fact, they're thinking that they're going to create eternal life, that they'll replace body parts and so on, and they can make us live forever. And some of the wealthy want to be quick-frozen so that they can be unthawed when that scientific capacity comes to pass, and that they can then be restored to life and live on. I think I I just read an article that said that they hope within two hours, uh, two hours, two years, to have complete body transplants. Not just a heart, not just a liver or a kidney or something, but complete body transplants. So now, instead of dreaming about Jamaica, you can begin to think about the body you want. I don't know whose you're going to get. I suppose they mean that if somebody dies and they have a certain body, that they can transfer the brain into the whole thing. I didn't read the article. But but it has to be your mind, I guess, still, but you get a whole new body. Hey, that doesn't sound too bad. I might go for that. wonder what it'll cost. I hope I can choose the one I want instead of one that they find in the corner and throw me in. (laughs) God has promised me a brand new one, a new mind and a new body, a transformation, a, a glorification. But if I didn't know that, I'd probably be reading those scientific things and thinking, I wonder if I could save up enough pennies to be a cryovac until they can make me immortal. Stupidity. Just dumb stuff. But you know, people believe in that stuff. They really do. There there are people of high intelligence who are studying how to do these things. Just transplanting the organs that they transplant today takes quite a bit of technical knowledge and capacity and ability to accomplish. And now they think they can do an entire body transplant? Maybe if things went on, they could. I don't know. So then you get on the list for a body donor. I can't turn that one loose. That's that's bizarre. Chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. When you're born... Again, we're looking at this in Solomon's eyes as from a purely physical human standpoint. Not really considering the spiritual in the future, but considering being born onto this earth. When you're born, you have what to look forward to. Trials, troubles, tribulations, pain, 
death of loved ones, all kinds of grief and frustration, hard work, sweat and thorns, tick and mosquito bites and viruses, and all kinds of trouble. And as you grow older, you have to look forward to debilitating diseases and injuries that will come back on you and being stooped and wrinkled and gray and the living dead almost until you finally succumb to whatever got you. Well, he says, the day you're born, that's what's ahead of you. The day you die, it's all behind you. You know, to some people, we hate to turn loose, but there comes a point where you say, death would be a relief. I've had a few days like that, not very many yet. I'll probably get more as time goes on if I live. <clears throat> but some people have mental and emotional states where they have a lot of those days. That doesn't make for a fun life, really, does it? So in that sense, this life is a life of pain, and then it's gone. If this is all there is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Now, given a choice, you'd rather go to a feast most of the time, wouldn't you, than to, let's say, a funeral or that kind of thing. Uh, that, that's not, not happy. For that is the end of all men. So he says, and really, you'd be better off to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting because you're going to be there someday. And what does a situation of mourning do to you? When we go to a funeral, we generally reflect, don't we, on our lives, the lives of those around us, the life of the person who is now dead, and the very real possibility that someday we're going there too. So it helps us comprehend our mortality. It makes us think. It might, if we sorrow enough, even give us opportunity to change certain things because we think about how much time we have left. What are we going to do with it? What have we done thus far? Big deal. Probably not much. And the living will lay it to his heart. So if you go to the house of mourning, you think about it, and it, it, uh, your thoughts go deep within your emotions and your heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. When you're laughing, joking, drinking, having a party, you don't think very deeply, do you? Not that there isn't a time to laugh. There is. We've already read that. There's also a time to cry. But he's saying in this life, mourning, crying, sorrow, in some respects is better for you than the laughter and the fun. Because it does cause deeper thinking.
The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And that's the way a lot of people approach life. I just want to have fun. Just want to have fun. Let's just do something fun. There are a lot of ramifications of that I don't need to get into necessarily, but it's an attitude and an approach to life. I work all week so I can just go have fun on the weekend. And then here comes Monday. But the goal in life is just basically for most people to have fun one way or another. And he says, if you're wise, <clears throat> you'll think about the more serious, sober side of life. You'll spend time meditating on those things. Not that we have to become morose and depressed all the time. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when you're thinking seriously and deeply, it can affect you for the good more than just laughing and having a party can. Sure, a time of relaxation can kind of pick you up, but usually after the party you kind of have an emotional letdown, don't you? Oh, we had a great time. I'm tired. Oh, we had a wonderful time. Now I've got to go to work. Uh, you know, there's, there's usually an emotional downside even when we've been having fun, as we might term it. So the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of laughter or mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Somebody has a certain wisdom, we ought to listen because we might pick up things that would help our lives be better than they are if we would truly pay heed and do something about it. <clears throat> For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. You can throw wood on the fire, thorns on the fire, you can build the fire up, and it dies down pretty quickly just as having a big laughing party can kind of heat things up a little bit, but then it dies down pretty quickly. And what have you got left? This also is vanity. Verse 7, Surely oppression makes a wise man mad, and a gift destroys the heart. So if we are oppressed, it can create anger, frustration, madness, <laughs> You know, anger and frustration can drive you insane. It can drive you mad, to use that particular term. And he says a little later that if anybody who is angry is a fool, in so many words. A gift destroys the heart. We can be swayed sometimes by things that people do or say or whatever. And it can turn us and destroy our heart. That's why we don't give gifts much. One reason, and it even says to the king, don't accept gifts. Because then when judgment, it's time for a judgment to be made. If uh, you've been being plied with gifts from somebody, then it's hard to give a proper judgment because you might be swayed by your friend. And we've all seen it, I think, in the Church of God over the years. Somebody wants to be a deacon, they want to be an elder, they want to uh, advance, at least in their view, advance within the church and hold office or whatever. So what do they do? They start 
taking care of the minister. They start doing all kinds of things so that they can gain favor and then hopefully get ordained or advanced. Uh, I'm sure if you've been around the church for 30, 40, 50 years, uh, you've seen that over and over and over again. So who gets ordained? Those that have made themselves the preacher's friend and given gifts. I've seen it happen many, many times. I was always one that was very slow to ordain anybody in a church. If I'd been there four, five, six years, I would leave recommendations behind. But I rarely laid hands on them because I didn't want to uh, show favoritism in that way. I did ordain people here and there, but I tried to be sure that the judgment was based on uh, qualification, not on them being my friend. Because that can lead to problems. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. We can be quick to anger, and yet we're told not to, but to be slow to wrath. Not let ourselves get all uptight and anxious and angry but to be patient in spirit. Now, you are what you are, and you have been what you have been. And God says, if you are proud in spirit, or quick to defend yourself, quick to accuse somebody else, uh, quick to make judgments, to be hasty in your attitudes toward others, then you need to change that. This isn't something that is necessarily an indictment as we read it. This is something that says, this is a better course than this. So if you tend to be impatient or quick on the trigger, you need to work seriously on becoming patient in spirit and not blowing your cork or letting off steam or venting or whatever the cute psychological word we might want to use today to justify what we're doing. It's better to be patient and to wait. What does he tell us there in Isaiah 8? To be patient and wait for God. People get impatient with God. I've seen people right here on this property get impatient because they didn't see the promises that God has made in the Scriptures come to pass as fast as they wanted. And because of that impatience and inability to wait until God does what he said he will do, in some cases they're gone. Because they did not have that and they were too quick in spirit, too quick to judge, too quick to say God isn't doing it and this is all just a work of man and I don't like that man so I'm gone. Better to be patient. Be not hasty in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. He says in so many words, an angry person is a fool. I heard Dr. Phil say one time that he was talking to a person who obviously was agitated and somewhat angry toward those in the family and those of his cohorts and colleagues. And he says, what you have to realize is that anger is pervasive. 
If you're angry at a situation or at a person, that anger will begin to com- begin, begin to color all your relationships. It will begin to color your attitude day in and day out, minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, until it becomes consuming and it consumes your life. And all you can think about is the anger that you have toward that job, that colleague, that family member, that friend, whatever. It will eventually consume you. That's what it did with Esau. So he says here, it is foolish to be angry. But when we feel ourselves growing angry, we feel a discontent, a frustration, we need to deal with that. We need to subjugate it and bring those thoughts into the captivity of Christ because they are not godly thoughts. And God is very, very slow to anger, thank God. And His anger dissipates very, very quickly. That is the godly approach. When we are harmed, when we are hurt, when we are sinned against or whatever, you know, every one of us sins against God daily, in thought or in action or in leaving something out, whether it's a sin of commission, what we're supposed to be doing, or one of omission, not doing what we should be doing. We all sin every day against God. And yet, how long has He prolonged you? How long has He prolonged me? He's been so very, very patient. When did this nation deserve to go under? Last month? Or really a long, long time ago? And yet God has been very patient with a lying, cheating, adulterous, uh, ungodly, selfish, idolatrous society for hundreds of years now. Well, He's waited and waited and waited. And when His wrath is unleashed, it will be unleashed for a very short time, and He will humble a lot of people, and then His anger will dissipate like the morning dew. So that's God's approach. He's very, very patient, slow to anger, and he gets over his anger very quickly. So if we're to be like God, then that's the way we should become. See? We should begin to think as he thinks, not as we think by nature. Because by nature, we do not think like God. So really... He's right. Uh, Don't be hasty to be angry. And if you allow anger to control your life, to begin to pervade it, then you are a fool in so many words. I didn't say that. God did. Solomon did. Say not you, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For you not inquire wisely concerning this. I've heard people, and I've done it myself at times, thinking I was born in the wrong age. I'd love to have been born back uh, in the early West, where I could have been a trapper and a mountain man, and I dreamed of those things as a child. God let me experience a lot of that with electricity, uh, instead of starving to death and dying of eating uh, stale dead beavers. 
or whatever uh, that killed a lot of people. So we, we think of those things and we talk of the good old days, way back when things were better. And yet, really, he says, it's the same thing over and over and over, generation to generation. It doesn't really matter the physical status or the level of wealth or whatever generation we might live in. The human problems are always the same. Each generation of parents tries to teach their children but to avoid this and don't do that, do this, and you know what? Doesn't do much good, does it? Maybe you can affect your children some by teaching them what's right. Maybe they'll listen to some degree, but most simply do not. They decide they're going to go out and they're going to do their thing, whatever their thing might be. And that's pretty much what they do. That isn't entirely the case. In every generation, there have been a few who would listen, and mostly those who would not. That's just the wish. So what good does it do to sit and consider, oh, I wish I'd have been born a hundred years or a thousand years ago or whatever. I wish I'd have been in the Garden of Eden. I'd have told Satan to pack it in. Yeah, you would have. Just like you do today. <laughs> You know, For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. You're just not grasping that the human element, the human frame, human existence has generation after generation been essentially the same. When Adam and Eve departed from God, everybody ever since has done the same thing. Some repent when called of God. Some change their lives to one degree or another, but we have the same drives, the same lusts, the same envyings, the same everything, generation to generation. That doesn't change. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance, and it should be saying there, wisdom is better than an inheritance. And the Hebrew is more the force of what is being said there. You can have an inheritance of money, but wisdom is better. In fact, uh, Marla had uh, Dr. Phil on yesterday, and they had this family on there, and the guy had won the lottery. And you talk about a miserable family and miserable, selfish wretchedness that appeared. And they bought everything they wanted, he mostly, because he had won it, so it was his the selfishness came out. But, you know, here was a million point six dollars that he'd just been handed above taxes. And it just ruined their lives. And then they had a list of different lottery winners and what had happened to them. Suicides, killed by relatives, all kinds of bad, evil things happened to people that won lotteries. So you think being wealthy is going to solve your problems. Uh, that's not the case. So even with an inheritance, you'd be better off being wise and knowing how to live and how to go about life than you would have in the money. And by it there is profit to them that see the sun. That is, 
If you can see the light, you can have wisdom, then that's a good thing. For wisdom is a defense, and money is a shadow, it should be translated. Wisdom is a shadow, and money is a shadow. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to them that have it. Isn't most of the frustration we suffer due to stupidity in one form or another, or of giving in to human desires that lead us into trouble? Most of our troubles are self-generated one way or another. We can blame them on somebody else, but it's usually us who's at the root and core of the problem. Consider the work of God, for who can make that straight which he has made crooked? If God chose to make something crooked, how are you going to make it straight? We discussed this a little bit when we were talking about marriage. So many of us get married with the idea, well, you know, now that I know this person a little better, there's this, this, and this wrong. I can see that ahead of time, but I'll fix it. I'll make it straight. Good luck. You'll need it. And God sometimes causes certain things to happen certain ways for His purpose. Consider uh, Judas. He's probably a nice guy. I don't remember what Judas did. Was he a fisherman or did he just do something else? I don't, it doesn't matter. It's immaterial. But God caused Christ, and Christ, I'm sure, knew ahead of time, who would betray him. He knew his mental thought processes. He understood the man. He knew how, where, where weaknesses and strengths were in his character. So he chose the eleven for certain characteristics they had that God could be able to use for positive things later, didn't he? But he chose Judas specifically knowing that he would be the one who would betray Christ. He was ordained for that job. So if God put a crooked man in there, you couldn't make it straight because God had decreed that that man would do a certain thing at a certain time. And Christ knew who it was, and he says when the time came, go quickly and do that which you do. It's time, go get her done. And Judas did. So, we need to be careful sometimes, all the time, that we do not get in God's way. Now, every one of us here in this room and on the telephone, or who will ever hear the tape, are somewhat crooked. None of us is completely straight. None of us is perfect by any means. So, God, in His wisdom, reached down, opened your mind taught you the truth, and brought you into his flock, into his fold, into his body, the body of Christ. 
Now, he did that with a purpose. And he has a purpose in each and every one of us here. And he is working that purpose. He is working that salvation. And he knows and knew way before he called you everything about you. He knew the twists and the nuances in your character. He knew every weakness you have. He knew every strength you have. He knew everything about you that there is to be known. And he called you anyway, despite the fact that most of us were weak in base and not mighty and noble. So he takes that which is crooked and he is capable of making it straight. Now, if we frustrate one another, and we impede one another, and we discourage one another by what we say and do, then we are fighting God, because God's goal and purpose is to make every one of us here what we ought to be. And we need to be sure that we are on board with God with whichever person we might be thinking about at the moment. That he has the capacity and the ability to change you and to change me. And he can literally do it. He knows, he knows when to encourage, when to chasten, when to bless, when not to. He knows exactly what each of us needs at any particular time to keep us on the path toward his kingdom. Now, if we rebel against that, he will allow us to go a different way. He will allow us to have bad attitudes. We have to go to him and ask for help to overcome those attitudes, to seek to overcome them, not be comfortable with them. And everyone has them. So, God knows what's going on. And if it's straight and... He made it straight, you can't make it crooked. And if it's crooked, you can't make it straight. So there's no sense in frustrating yourself over so-and-so because you're not going to have any impact. Maybe in a negative way you might, but in a positive way, probably not in terms of you changing someone to be in the image you wish that they were. It just won't happen. That's God's job. That's God's job. We can encourage one another, but God takes all these things into account. What did he say in Daniel 4? He sets over the nations the basest of men. I think that's verse 6, I'm not sure. The basest of men. So when you look at the world's governments today, you will find that the men that are there are the wickedest, worst men on earth, for the most part. God said that. He sets the crooked over the nations. Mankind is determined to go Satan's way, so God makes sure their leadership goes that way until the time of refreshing comes, and Christ is in charge, 
and the saints who have overcome are ruling with him, and then it will change. He will put the most righteous over the nations. But this situation today, if he had righteous leadership, and people would not listen to what those righteous leaders said, then they would be lost because they would have gone against what is truth. That's why we are in jeopardy every day, because God has given us the truth, and He's given us leaders who will read the truth to us. And if we don't follow it, what will happen to us? We'll be a castaway, as Paul said, is a danger. So God on purpose has set the basis of men over the nations. Now, it is, such a, it is such a revelation to us when we discover such and such about our own leaders or leaders in other countries. Oh, they're awful. Well, if we'd read Daniel 4, we'd already know that. We wouldn't have to have it proved. We'd know that if they're at the head of the nations today, they're evil. The basest of men. And they don't have us and our good fortune in mind. They are selfish and evil and greedy, and they have their own agendas, and they're not God's agendas, they're Satan's agendas. That's just the way it is. So it's not a revelation, it's just a matter of accepting and believing what God said, and then when you see it, you say, oh yeah, now I see, God said this would be the way it is, and sure enough, there it is. But he is allowing them to wallow in blindness. Romans 11 spells it right out. Blindness has happened in part to the Gentiles. But ultimately, most will be saved. But Christ spoke in parables so they could not understand. Because if they had understood and rejected, they would have had to have been destroyed. So he's opened your mind and my mind and we have a wonderful opportunity, but we need to be very, very careful in how we use that opportunity. And if we are crooked, we need to go to God and get straight in every way. And that means all of us, because we all have our crooks in our personalities and character. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider if God blesses us, or we have good opportunity and blessings, enjoy them, be thankful for them, be content with them, be happy you have them. But in the day of adversity, consider, God also has set the one over against the other. So he knows when we need adversity. So when things are not going so good, then is when we need to deeply Think about ourselves, be introspective. What do I need to change? What is there in my attitude or my conduct that needs corrected because here I am having adversity? Maybe if I would straighten this, this, or that out, things would be better. God has set both up. To the end that man should find nothing after him. He gave us all human existence. And if 
it isn't always the way we want it to be, consider, do what we need to change, because you're going to die, and you better have something else in your future. All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. Solomon was in a position, he had seen it all. There wasn't anything in human conduct that he had not observed. There is a just man that perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man that prolongs his life in his wickedness. Sometimes righteous people die early. Sometimes wicked just don't ever want to seem to die. Some of the biggest crooks on earth, the lowest scum of human existence, lives to a ripe old age. You see both. Now, is that because God blesses the wicked and that's a better way to be? And he causes the righteous to die young? No. He'll comment on that a little bit. Be not over much wicked, neither be you foolish. Why should you die before your... T- oh, wait a minute, I'll skip verse 16. Uh, be not righteous over much, or self-righteous, too righteous in your own estimation, where you condescend to others and feel that they are less righteous than you. Uh, holier than thou is the way uh, Isaiah puts it, I think, in chapter 65 or 4. So don't be self-righteous, neither make yourself overwise. There's where we begin to compare ourselves among ourselves, and that is not wise. But we, in our own mind, consider our opinion and our assessment of a situation better than someone else's, don't we? I mean, after all, it is my opinion, therefore it must be better than yours. If it was bad, I would change it. But since I have it, it must be okay, because it's mine. Well, maybe you need to examine it in the light of Scripture and see if, indeed, it is God's and therefore okay for it to be yours. Why should you destroy yourself when we're self-righteous and consider ourselves and esteem ourselves very highly in our own minds, we are on the path to destroying ourselves. Because vanity and ego gets in the way, and we ultimately get frustrated, bitter, angry, whatever, and with others, and then that affects us, and we destroy not them, but ourselves. So he, he has a lot of wisdom, does he not? And realizing that sometimes we are really hurting ourselves more than we're accomplishing with the attitudes that we let ourselves get into. Be not overmuch wicked, neither be you foolish. Why should you die before your time? Wickedness and foolishness can lead to an early demise because we make dumb, stupid mistakes that cause that. Now, if you were at home in your backyard uh, having a barbecue or with your family or something, uh, you have a pretty good chance of surviving the night, I would say. 
If you're in a back alley somewhere making a drug trade, you have a far greater percentage chance of dying that night. If you're doing something that's safe, you have a better chance of living than if you're doing something stupid. If you go into the bar and you get drunk and you drive a car, you're far more apt to die than a guy home reading a book and kill someone else along with you. So, why should you die before your time? Verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this. Yea, also from this withdraw not your hand, for he that fears God shall come forth of them all. He begins to give us the insight of something beyond vanity, of beyond temporal, beyond human, beyond death that there truly is something we need to be looking to and looking for that transcends anything that happens on this earth. And there we begin to see wisdom. Doesn't it say that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom? He that fears God shall come forth of them all. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is where wisdom begins. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten mighty men which, men which are in the city. You can have ten big, strapping, tall, strong, muscled men, uh, and they would think that they have more influence than somebody who might be old, decrepit, but who has wisdom. Now, we'll soon use an example here in a moment that... It isn't mightiness and muscular power that is important, but wisdom. For there is not a just man upon earth that does good and sins not. No matter what, there's nobody that's perfect. No matter how we might strive and work at and overcome and grow and truly make changes, we'll never make perfection on this earth. There's not one. Only one ever was, and that's Christ. So nobody goes without sin. Also take no heed to all the words that are spoken, lest you hear your servant curse you. Sometimes it's better just to walk on by and not stop and listen around the corner. Uh, You don't need to hear all the evil that's being said about you. And it's true, whether it be in business or family or whatever relationship there might be. There's always management and employees. And the two fight. And the managers get together and diss the employees. And the employees get together and diss the managers. And it's true in any human relationship there is. It's true in church. It's true anywhere. Sometimes it's better just not to even hear it. Just do the best you can. Go on. And if they want to whisper and be negative and backbite, That's their problem. You don't need to hear it necessarily. Just get on with what you need to be doing. For oftentimes also your own heart knows that you likewise have cursed others. So it's there's two sides to that coin. You might listen and be real upset at somebody for what they're saying, and yet you need to stop and think, wait a minute, I've done the same thing. We all have, have we not? 
So let's not get so high and mighty and get our panties in a wad because somebody said something about us. It won't do us any good. It'll give us wadded panties. That's kind of coarse and crude, isn't it? Maybe I should have thought of something different. It just came to mind. But I think it illustrates the point. Let's see. Verse 23. All this have I proved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. You know, we can wish we were wise, and we can say I'm going to be wise, but then we reach situations where it's hard to be wise, because we have trouble sorting out what is good and right and what is not. What we should say and what we shouldn't say what we should do and what we shouldn't do. So we have these conundrums that come up in life. What are you going to do? What are you going to say? Wisdom doesn't come easy. God gave it to Solomon. It wasn't something he had of and by himself. It was a gift from God. And it doesn't come that easy. We need to ask for it so that we conduct ourselves in a wise manner. Verse 24, that which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out? There are some things that seem apparent to us that are easy to make judgments on, but there are some things that are very deep and very uh, elusive, very hard to figure out. I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly even of foolishness and madness. So he watched people's conduct. He watched their lives. Watched what they did. And he thought, where's that person headed? How's he going to wind up? I see them doing this, this, and this. I got an idea there's trouble brewing. He can see somebody else that's doing this, this, and this. And he says, I see growth there. I see somebody there who's trying to learn and to better themselves and to overcome. So he he watched all those things. He watched people and tried to discern what leads to contentment and happiness and health and long life and that which tends to truncate life or to destroy happiness and contentment. So God does the same thing, really. He says he ponders our hearts. He thinks about what we are thinking and our emotions and our feelings. And he ponders which way we're going. God has more wisdom than any being there is, and that's how he approaches it. But he's all for us at the same time. If he sees us going the wrong way, sometimes he does something that helps us get back on the path. Because it is his heart's desire to give us eternal life. He wishes that above all things for us. It is his good pleasure to give us life eternal, is the way it's put. So he wants us to go the better way. So he wanted to know the wickedness of folly and foolishness and madness And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands as bands. Whoso pleases God shall escape from her. 
but the sinner shall be taken by her. It's, it's interesting in Solomon's life that he frequently mentions something of that nature. If you get into Proverbs, he makes those comments about, it starts out the Proverbs with wisdom and the, the, uh, uh, the woman who is trying to capture you or captivate you. And uh, then he makes comments through the Proverbs about how a, uh, a nagging wife and a dripping faucet are the same and how it's better to live in the corner of a housetop uh, with barely room to turn over than to live with a, uh, a nagging woman and so on. Well, he only had a thousand around. <laughs> so I suspect this was on his mind quite a bit. Uh, you know, he, he he only married 300, but then he had 700 spares, uh, concubines, a thousand women. And among those, I'm sure, there were some conniving, nagging types. I, I have no idea. I mean, that's more women than anybody could possibly appreciate or do anything with. Uh, he finally farmed them out, according to the Song of Solomon, just ran a, a huge brothel and even gave the price uh, for anyone who wants to come help him with the workload. So, he went through an awful lot, and he had his heart turned away by their pagan gods. So, his experiences there weren't too good. But even on a one-to-one level, if a man is trying to do this, and he has a woman who is selfish and uh, puts snares and nets in front of you, and impede your progress, that's not good. It's better to have a woman who is encouraging and strengthening and helpful and, and wanting to help you be a successful leader and man. Uh, that's far, far better. The other kind will bring you down. The sinner will be taken by her. Behold, this have I found, says the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account. He ran a poll, okay? which yet my soul seeks, but I find not. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those have I not found. He was searching for and conducting a poll, looking for a good man, and he said he had found one out of a thousand men. And out of a thousand women, he hadn't found one good one. That's pretty low odds. I wonder who the good man was. Any guesses? <laughs> I expect the only good man he found was himself. Never mentions anybody else. So he says, I've, I've, I've polled 2,000 people and I found one good one, that's me. The rest of them aren't any good. That's a pretty jaundiced view of life and view of people. Uh, I think I've seen and known a lot of people that I would consider essentially good people. None perfect, but I've seen a lot of converted people in God's church who had a lot of good qualities, and I would recommend them. Someone comes and says, would you marry this one? Yeah, I think you should go after that one. Should you marry this one? Let's talk some more. <laughs> you know, uh, but he, remember, was pretty jaded, and he had had some pretty wide experience, 
and he had been disappointed a lot. So he, he was beginning to get down on everybody. And really, in human life, don't you realize that no matter who you know, to one degree or another, sooner or later, they will disappoint you? Some of us have been so excited when we got married and thought, this is the man or the woman of my dreams. This one's perfect. And don't you dare try to tell them they're not before they get married. Talk again in five years. But before they get married, don't you dare say anything because they have this ideal. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, you don't want to bash anything in their dream. But sooner or later, living together, they find, oh, this one's not perfect either. Male or female, they're not perfect. And sooner or later, we will disappoint one another to one degree or another, will we not? May not be major disappointment, but we have minor ones, and sometimes we have major ones. And boy, how hard it is then to overcome that, to restore the relationship, to help each other and strengthen one another and still love one another and care for one another when everything hasn't gone so well. So here was a man who had had a lot of experience and he had been disappointed by everybody. Lo, this only have I found. That God has man, made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. God created man to be upright. Adam and Eve were created with good character and good qualities, and yet very quickly they were corrupted. And when we are born, our parents have great hopes for us. Oh, what a cute baby. There's not a cuter baby than my baby. My baby is a wonderful baby, and my son is certainly cuter than your son or your daughter, and, and smarter too. This baby is special because it's mine. And we have great hopes for that child, do we not? And then we spend lots of time studying various books and tapes and, and documentaries or wherever we go and seeking advice sometimes from others, as to how to best raise a baby. So we have our Dr. Spocks that everybody read carefully, and then they raised a bunch of renegades on that system. And then they'll get a new system. Oh, let's try this. We'll have good kids. So everybody expects man to be upright, and they expect their kids to be upright and good, upstanding citizens and do well in life and never have frustrations or addictions or divorces or any of those things. And we even think of ourselves that way, do we not? Before life turns us inside and out and upside down and twists us around. We intend to have a good, perfect life when we're little and <laughs> formulating our dreams and our hopes for the future. But we have many inventions. We have many things that we start to consider that lead us in other directions that bring us grief and heartache and frustration and failure, don't we? Every one of us has, to one degree or another. So, 
he's expressing some futility here. No matter how great your dreams are, you're going to fall short of those sooner or later, one way or another, and we're all going to disappoint each other sooner or later. I've disappointed a lot of people in my life, you know that? Certainly have. And I'll probably disappoint some more. Sorry, don't mean to. I'm just me. And sometimes that gets in my way. All far too frequently. And you get in your way. And we make mistakes. Or we hurt people. Or we say things that were unkind or cutting and didn't mean it. And maybe we were saying it in a joking fashion. And yet somebody took it serious and they're really hurt. And they don't know we were joking. And you're going to offend. No man is able to totally control the tongue so that he doesn't offend. I've done it. You've done it. All we can do is apologize and try to move on and try to do less of it. But we'll still make a mistake sometimes. So, we have many inventions. We have many ways that we discover that we can do what we want to do and be selfish that will wind up hurting other people. We even use that expression. Why well, don't hurt anybody? Who did that hurt? Well, if you're not following God's ways, sooner or later, whatever you say and do is going to hurt somebody. That's just a fact. It will. And it may just be you. But that's bad enough, isn't it? So this man had had a lot of wisdom, he had a lot of blessings, and yet he saw the futility of this life as lived generation after generation, and that life has its frustrations, and people will frustrate us, conditions will frustrate us. We need to fear God, he said that earlier in this chapter, and he will summarize this at the end and show that only through God can we overcome the frustrations and the disappointments and the vanity and the ego and the finality of life on this earth. So, I think God included this book for some very important reasons. To help us come to the house of mourning, if you will. The book of Ecclesiastes is about as close to the house of mourning as any book there is in the Bible. But it makes us think about whatever goals and dreams and purposes we might have and where they'll wind up if God doesn't come into the picture. So that'll be enough for today.